Hey Coastal, my name is Gene Cornett. I am the lead campus pastor here at Bethany Place in Richmond. For more than a year, I've been praying and seeking God about his direction for us here at Bethany Place relative to a relationship with Coastal. And I'm encouraged about several aspects of that. I've been moved by the joy and the humility I sense in your leaders. I'm hopeful about the intentional training for our leaders. I'm encouraged by the clear and direct paths I see for volunteer engagement for our members here. I'm excited to be a part of a clear strategy to connect, grow, serve, and multiply. And I'm encouraged about just relational partners for us here at Bethany Place. So for all of these reasons, we're excited about the future and we look forward to partnering with you for the sake of the gospel here in Richmond. Let's give God praise for what's taking place in our Richmond campus. Well, let's dive right into it. Psalm 119, starting at verse 9. Psalm 119. We're just going to dive right into it. The writer asked the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is Psalm 119, starting at verse 9. This chapter of Psalm is a poem that recognizes human experiences. For we all have human experiences. We all have flaws. We have weaknesses. We have trials and struggles while living in this dark world, a sinful world full of temptation. But even though this poem recognizes our flaws and the issues that we have as human beings, it puts more emphasis on the solution for the problems we face and the calling of God for his people. Which brings me to the first point of this message this morning. We are called to be pure. We are called to be pure. As we read this text, there are several important words that give us a deeper understanding of God's desire and his love for us. And as we read these scriptures, we're going to spend some time focusing on them. And the first word that I want to focus on in this passage is the word purity. This passage, the word purity, is a word of complete innocence. It is the freedom from all uncleanness. Verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Verse 9 is a question that every believer should have. Every believer should have this question because this is a question of self-examination. It's a question of honesty and transparency. This is how God wants us to come to him. This is how God wants us to come to him. Something else I want to point out in verse 9 is the word keep. The word keep. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? That word keep is a word of consistency. That's a word that demands commitment to our profession. It's often easy to get things started. We profess our desire to lose weight. We profess our desire to finish or go back to school. We profess our desire to start a business. We begin to look into the process of starting, and some of us get excited and we're ready to go, but after a while, we get tired. After a while, we find ourselves losing motivation. This, This season of losing motivation, weariness can occur in our walk with the Lord as well. We receive Jesus as Lord. And things seem great. We join a small group. We serve in a ministry. And then we begin to fall from that that high of a fresh start. Things begin to become limited to a routine. And the desire for something new begins to creep in and rise. And the desire for something new will increase so much that we begin looking everywhere for a new beginning, even if it jeopardizes our relationship and our walk with the Lord. We'll look for another job to earn money even if it takes time away from our families. We'll look to worldly possessions with hope to satisfy our fleshly desires. We'll even build relationships with people who can become stumbling blocks in our walk with God simply to get out of what we call the norm. All of this is a result of being tired, a result of being worn out spiritually. And it's often easy for us to start something but this word, you, this word keep, this writer, he uses the word keep. And I believe that it's a word that challenges every believer in this room. He's not asking God how to become pure. He's asking God, how can I keep this thing going? That's the question that every believer should ask in the world where we live, a world where we have access to fall into temptation and it increases with every generation, a world where people do and say hurtful things with no care or concern of the burdens that you carry in your personal and private life, a world where the devil will use any and every trick and every scheme to hinder your spiritual walk through entertaining the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And because every human on the planet has a sin nature, it's natural for us to have these fleshly desires these fleshly desires that cause us to lose focus on the things of Christ sin makes us put our desires above the needs of others and the law of God and this writer this writer is recognizing the natural desires that humans have to chase after the pleasures of this dark sinful world he asked God Not only to make him pure, but to give him what he needs to be committed to his profession. That should be the prayer of every believer. Not just how can I start this thing, but God, how can I have the consistency to keep this thing going? That is the question. Which brings me to my next point because verse 9 starts with a question, but the next point is God's word is the answer. God's word is the answer. The writer asks a convicting question of self-conviction, a question that reveals a desire to be committed to serving the Lord. But something else I want to point out about this prayer, and I pray that this increases your love and reverence for the Lord, but notice how the question is answered within the same verse. 
Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it to your word. I believe God wants us to know something in this verse. I, want, I think he wants us to pay attention to this verse very closely because I believe he wants us to know that we don't need to search too far for an answer. Before we could get to the next verse, the answer was right there. The answer to this question is God's word. The scripture are the answer to this question. This is what 2 Timothy is talking about, 3, 16, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are God-breathed. So when we're reading the scriptures, we're hearing God's voice. We can sense his presence. So how can a young man stay pure? That's the question that's being asked. Before we get to the next verse, God is saying, don't look anywhere else. Here I am. God is infinite in his attributes. He's all powerful and he's all knowing. He, he has the answer to every area of our lives in God's word. It reminds us that we're not walking in this life alone. It's in his word that he tells us that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil for I will be with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. It's in God's word where he says that he's near to the broken hearted. In fact, Jesus said in the word, come to me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, it's light. It's in God's word that we find rest and that we find peace. God's word is the answer. How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I told you as we read, there's going to be important words to focus on. And the next word I want to focus on is the word guard. This word guard is important. In the King James Version, it says, by taking heed according to your word. He says, taking heed or being obedient in the King James. So that means obedience to God's word guards us from falling into temptation. It guards us from living contrary to our profession of faith. This word guard is in reference to protection in the form of a hedge. So it's not just any type of protection, but it is protection in the form of a hedge. Some of you may have heard that phrase, a hedge of protection. You may hear people pray that God will protect someone and they say, God, keep a hedge of protection around them or over them. A hedge is a tall wall of bushes. That's what a hedge is. A tall wall of bush. Anybody ever seen over the hedge? That's more of a millennial generation, right? Over the hedge. It's a tall wall of bushes. The scriptures, when the, when the scriptures were written in the Old Testament, they took place in areas where shepherds tended to large flocks of sheep. It's also a time where wild animals and uh, beasts would attack flocks and even people, especially children. Not only did families need protection from wild animals, but they needed protection from thieves and robbers because this would often happen 
Or this is what happened so often that they needed to build something for protection. And so they didn't have time to build stone walls because this was happening like this. So they didn't have time to take stones and try to build a wall and put things together. They didn't have time to cut down trees and build fences. So one thing that they had easy access to and that could be easily built was a hedge. And so they took large bushes and they stacked them on top of each other until a wall was formed. But these bushes had thorns and thistles that were so long that just one touch could split your skin wide open. So through the bushes, though the bushes made it, it seemed like they were weaker than a stone wall. And it seemed like they didn't have the strength of a wooden fence. Usually when you look at a stone wall, there's so many cracks and crevices and ridges that provide a way for the enemy to slip his foot in and make ways to climb over. Sometimes a fence is easily easy to climb over, but hedges are filled with countless numbers of thorns and thistles. So when the enemy tries to invade your space, the more that he tries to bring harm to you, the more harm he brings to himself. That's what Satan is talking about when you go to Job chapter 1. The Bible says that God had a conversation with Satan in Job chapter 1. And God points to Satan. He points out his servant Job saying that Job is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears him and shuns evil. And notice Satan's response. If you read this in Job chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, Job says, or the devil says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has and on every side? In other words, the devil is telling God every time we have tried to attack him, it backfires. Every time that he, we try to attack, it backfires on the kingdom of darkness because he and his family are guarded. And so when we read Psalm 119 verse 9, God wants us to know that obedience to his word guards us like a head so that every attack from the devil ends up backfiring on the kingdom of darkness. That's the power of God's word. That's the power of God's word. The hedge, a hedge, and like I said, it, it was built quickly. It was built quickly. That's why I believe this passage was worded this way. Because God wants us to know how fast... He'll protect us. How fast he'll protect our minds. How fast he'll guard our hearts. It's not like a stone wall that takes long to build. It's not like a wooden fence that could be easily climbed over. But before we could even move on to the next verse after this question was asked, God said, look around. You're already protected. Before we could get to the next verse, God says, I'm here. His word is the answer. I love verse 9 because it reveals the power of God's word and how it guards us. But moving forward, starting at verse 10, it tells us what to do with this word. So the first thing that we need to note, which brings me to my next point, we surrender to God's word. We surrender to God's word. Psalm 119, starting at verse 10, it says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. Verse 10 is very interesting because the writer doesn't start by telling God, I will seek you. He doesn't start by telling God, I'll seek you. He doesn't start by asking the Lord to keep him from wondering from his commandments. The first thing this writer says 
with my whole heart. That's the first thing he says, with my whole heart. That word whole is a word of total and complete submission. He says, with my whole heart. And usually when we hear this word heart, it refers to our emotions. But in this passage, the word heart refers to our emotions and our minds, our intellect. So the writer is saying he's submitting his emotion and his logical views, his intellect to the Lord. You know, there's many things about scripture that draws us in emotionally, but not logically. There are many things about scripture that draws in and make us feel good, but it doesn't make sense intellectually. You know, our emotions are drawn to know that God took the time to make a human being by hand because it reveals his intimate love for us and his desire to have a relationship with us. But for some people, logically, And intellectually, it doesn't make sense how God could scoop up the dust of the earth and mix it with the dew of the morning and make over 200 bones. Make a nervous system and a respiratory system, a lymphatic and digestive system, a head, shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, mouth and nose. It doesn't make sense how God could take this dust and make blood, sweat, saliva and tears from dust. There are many things about God That makes sense and it feels good emotionally, but it does not make sense intellectually. How can God take one man and single-handedly use him to slaughter a thousand Philistine soldiers with nothing but a donkey's jawbone? It feels good, but it doesn't make sense. Some people, logically, it doesn't make sense how God could do this. There are many things about God and his word that doesn't make sense, but there are things about God that even a degree program cannot fully explain. But in this passage, the writer is saying, I'm not just giving you my emotions. I'm giving you and I'm surrendering my intellect. When I read this poetic prayer of Psalm 119, I'm I'm, I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 14. And I brought this to your attention before. Exodus chapter 14 is a prime example of the writer of Psalm 119, what he's expressing. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites so that they could make their way to the land that he promised their forefathers. And as they're making their exit, the rule of Pharaoh, they're singing, they're dancing, the rule of Pharaoh, the, the, the land of Egypt, slavery is now a thing of the past, right? Bible says that they're singing, they're dancing as they're going through the wilderness. God led them in the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. They're rejoicing on their way to the promised land. Then they come to the Red Sea. Now we hear this story and we get excited because we know what's about to happen. We hear this story and we're at the edge of our seat because We know something great and something huge is about to happen, but they didn't see it that way because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand what God was about to do with this. And so now after all this rejoicing, they find themselves stagnant because it seems as if God has led them to a dead end. They literally walked with God and walking with God led them to a dead end. And to make matters worse, they're at a dead end, and now Pharaoh has changed his mind and is pursuing them with the intent to kill every 
one of them. I want, I want to read this. I want you to hear this. So this is what happens when Pharaoh comes. It says, Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have you done what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what, the, what you said to us, or this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. I want you to pay attention to this last one. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's pursuing them with the intent to kill them. And the Bible says they complain. They wonder if they should have stayed in Egypt. What we're seeing in this text, what we're seeing in this text is how being stagnant changes our view of our past. What we're seeing, God has saved them. He has brought them out of toxic Egypt and now that they're stagnant the way they see their past has changed God has saved many of us he's brought some of us out of toxic relationships but but now that feeling of loneliness kicks in and now you wonder if that relationship was as bad as you made it out to be I know he called you everything outside of your name but I don't feel I don't feel I feel lonely so was it really that bad God saved you and, and you vowed to no longer look to drugs for relief. But once life gets challenging and you find your back against the wall and it seems as if someone pulled the floor from under your feet, you begin wondering if drugs were as bad as they seemed to be back then. God saved the Israelites from bondage and they literally walked with God as he led them in the form of a cloud and in the form of fire. But once they reached the dead and they begin to question if their past was as bad as they made it out to be. They're giving Moses all these ideas and all these suggestions on how to get through this season. Moses has a dead end in front of him and he has all this confusion behind him. But in the midst of all this confusion, God says to Moses, lift your rod. Lift your rod. Verse 16 of Exodus 14. I'm going somewhere with this. Lift up your staff. This is what God says to Moses. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So before God called Moses, this is the same rod. Moses never changed his rod. Before God called Moses, his rod was used to lead a flock. After God calls Moses, his rod is used to lead a nation. So his staff is a symbol of leadership and authority. It is a symbol of his role as a pastor. And so Moses is surrounded by chaos, but God says, lift your rod. Give me your position. Give me your office. Give me full control. Not only does God say lift your rod, but then God says something more. He says, lift your hand. Moses' rod was his position, but his hand was a symbol of his heart and his mind. 
So God is saying in this moment of challenge, don't just give me your position. Don't just give me what you do, but give me all of you. In the midst of trial, God has has Moses standing with both his hands lifted. Y'all know what that is. That's the posture of worship. Worship, it causes us to look beyond our titles and our positions. It causes us to look beyond how we feel about ourselves and those around us. And even makes, even when it doesn't make logical sense, God calls us to worship and look beyond our intellect. God tells Moses, lift your hands, but don't just lift your hands. God takes it a step further and says, do this over the sea. Now, now, now the sea was the dead end. The sea was the issue. The sea was the obstacle. But God says, lift your hands over the sea. So now God tells Moses to do this literally, but this is what he wants us to do spiritually. So what we're seeing is God demanding worship to be greater than the problem. When we read Psalm 119 verse 10, the writer recognizes that there is a problem that come. There are problems that come with living in this dark world. But he recognizes the stress that people can bring despite his surroundings. He says, with my whole heart, I will seek you. That means even in hardship, I give you my marriage, I give you my children, I give you my job, I give you my finances, I give you my goals, I give you my dreams, I give you my ideas and my views, my emotion, my logic, I give you all of me. So we are called to stand over the issue and surrender to God. That's what Moses did. And because Moses surrendered to God, God did not change the issue, but he raised it up and gave them the strength to go through. Worship may not change the issue, but worship will give you the strength to go through it to get to the other side. God gave Moses the strength to go through because worship. God is calling us to worship with our whole heart. That's the prayer found in Psalm 119 says in verse 10 with my whole heart I will seek you I will follow you wherever you go that's what he's saying and then he says don't let me stray from your commandments now the way this passage is written it seems as if he's concerned that God will let him go astray but verse 9 again he declares God's word as being a hedge of protection and so when you put verse 9 and verse 10 together you'll see that the writer is actually thanking God in verse 10 that he won't let him go astray. He's not asking God as if God will, but it's a prayer of thanksgiving that no matter how far I try to go, you will not let me go astray because you have me guarded. So God's word, it not only keeps the enemy away from us, but it keeps us away from the enemy. A hedge not only keeps a robber from breaking in, but it keeps those who lived in the house from going out too far. So when you read verse 9, it reveals the power of God's word and the protection of his word. Verse 10, is a, it teaches us to surrender to God's word. And now verse 11 teaches us to store God's word. That brings me to my next point. We are to store God's 
word. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, as I said, there are words that we need to pay attention to in this word store. In this passage, this word store is a word of reservation. It is to reserve. In fact, take it a step further, this word is in relation to hoarding. It is to hoard. Hoarders are usually believed to be junky. You know a hoarder when you see one. You know a hoarder when you see one. Because hoarders are loaded with stuff. Just stuff. Just stuff. You, 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 not only are they loaded with stuff, but they defend their stuff. God help us all if you walk in a hoarder's house and say, throw this stuff out. If you want to make a hoarder upset, tell them their place needs to be cleaned out. Because a hoarder will defend their stuff. And I know that sometimes hoarders can seem crazy because of how much they cling to this stuff. But I want you to pay attention to something about hoarders. And I'm not telling you to follow their example. So I'm not, I'm not telling you. But hoarders get defensive because they see the value in everything they come across. They see the value in everything they come across. Just about every item in that house has a precious memory attached to it. It reminds them of a special season in their lives or a special person in their lives, a special moment or event that took place in their lives. But not only do these items remind them of what has happened, but then there's some items that keep them in, in anticipation of what may happen in the future. See, a hoarder will store things that may seem unnecessary now. But one thing, if you tell them, let's throw this out, they're going to say, as time progresses, this thing might have some value to it. So that's why I'm going to keep this thing, because the value may increase as time progresses. This is how God wants us to respond to his word. This is how God wants us to see his word. When we read the scriptures, we are to store it away in our minds. And so the writer is saying, he's saying, my, my, my body is like a spiritual house with multiple rooms. I have a room of intellect. I have a room of emotions. I have a room of goals. I have a room of dreams. I have a room of ideas. And each room is hoarded. But it's not hoarded with just stuff. It's hoarded with scripture. It's full of scripture. He's saying in 11, my body is like a house and, and it's full of scripture and it's full of so much stuff, so much scripture that when sin tries to knock on the door, there's no room for it to take residence because every room from top to bottom is packed with scripture. Our minds should be so full of so much scripture that our fleshly desires have no room to come in. That's what hoarders do. Hoarders, if there are hoarders that have so much stuff in their house that the floor can no longer be seen. You cannot see the floor. You can't see certain parts of the walls. Their homes are full of so much stuff that nothing else can fit. They can't buy anything because if anything outside of what's in there comes in, it could be damaged or lost. That is how we should see 
the scriptures. When our fleshly desires come in, there's no room because our house is full of scripture. And when our house is full of scripture and when we're, every room is packed and we're hoarding and we're building so much scripture up in our heart, we'll see life through the lens of scripture. We'll have compassion toward those that hurt us because now we see life through the lens of scripture. We'll see hard, sin as a harmful, toxic disease instead of a source of relief because now we see through the lens of scripture. He says, my intellect, he says, my heart, I've stored the word in my heart, which means my intellect and my emotions are full of so much scripture that there's no room for sin to take residence. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This morning's passage is part of a large prayer. There's over a hundred verses in this, in this chapter. Did y'all know that? That's a lot to read. Over a hundred verses, but all of this is a large prayer, a large poetic prayer that makes up Psalm 119. It's a prayer that recognizes our need for God's word because we have a fallen nature. Our nature is rooted in sin. God is holy and he is righteous. He made us in his image and in his likeness. He gave us a command but instead of, instead of storing and hoarding his command and his spoken word in our hearts, we allowed our ideas and how we should live this life to take residence. And eventually it ruled over us. And so we rebelled against God, trying to live life on our own terms. Our rebellion produced nothing fruitful, but it produced sin and it produced death. All the earth, all of mankind became hoarders of sin, allowing this dark, filthy, toxic disease to take so much residence that God separated himself from us. We were separated from God, deserving nothing but his wrath. But God still loved us. He loved us so much that he gave us his perfectly spoken Word, But even still, because of our nature, we rebelled against that. He gave us his infallible written word. When you read the Torah and the Pentateuch, he gave us his written word, the scriptures. But because of our sin nature, we rebelled against it. Although our rebellion had developed because of a sin nature, we are still made in the image of a relational and a relatable God. And so because God made us to be relational, we needed a word that could be relational and we needed a word that could be relatable. We needed a word that could live and breathe like us, a word that could physically hold our hand and wipe our tears. We needed a word with eyes and ears and a mouth, a nose, hands and feet, a word who, like us, got hungry and tired at times. We, we needed a word that felt happy at times and got angry at other times like us. We, we, we needed a word that could not only teach us, but could physically live out what's been taught. A word who could be tempted as we are, but would have enough power to endure and conquer the struggles that come with living in a sinful world. We needed a word that could live a sinless example of the Father's spoken and written 
word. This is why I love the book of John, because the book of John, the apostle, knowing our need for a relatable word, he starts the very beginning of his book by saying, before we rebelled against God, in fact, before we even existed in the beginning, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shined in darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it, which means no matter how hard the darkness tried to put it out, it couldn't. John later tells us that this word in the beginning became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word taught us how to live a pleasing life to the Father, but then he lived it out. While he taught us to forgive our enemies, he forgave them. While he taught us to trust in the Father in hardship, he trusted him. While he taught us how to resist temptation of the devil, he resisted and overcame temptation. He was tempted at all points but never sinned because he was so full of God's written word. He hoarded it in his heart and he stored it in his mind that sin had no room to take residence in his heart. And that's what Matthew 4 tells us that every time he was tempted by the devil, he didn't respond with who he was. He didn't respond with his preference. But every word that came out of his mouth in response to the devil's temptation was strictly scripture. The word lived among us and he experienced life as a human, but even with a perfect example of scripture living so close to us, we still reject it. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but even through the pain of being rejected, he remained sinless. And because he was so sinless, he was the only human qualified to face the Father's wrath for our sins. The Word made flesh. He was beaten and he was bruised. He was mocked and he was spit on. But yet he remained sinless because he was totally surrendered to the Father with his whole heart. Just as Moses stood over the sea and surrendered his hands to the Lord, so was the Word surrendered as he stretched his hands. But he didn't do it over the sea. He did it on a cross, his hands were nailed and his feet were nailed. A crown of thorns were placed on his brow. And on the cross, he died. He died for our sins. He was taken down from the cross and he was buried. But three days later, the word made flesh bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. Jesus Christ is the word. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. Jesus lived among us. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and three days later, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And so when we surrender to the Lord Jesus, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And although sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit fills us and uses the scriptures to guide us in the ways of Jesus. But we can only be guided if we meditate on the scripture. I'm going to close this message with my last point. We meditate on God's word. We meditate on God's word. Psalm 119, the last few verses, it says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
in the way of your testimonies. I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God's word, it teaches us so that we can teach and disciple others. To teach, in verse 12, he says, teach me your word. To teach is to break something down and dissect it until it is able to be presented in its simplest form. But that only comes through meditation. So verse 15, it tells us that we need to meditate on God's word. Meditation requires our complete attention. Our complete attention. So when we meditate on God's word, we're completely focused on what God wants to say through his word. So this isn't the same thing as Eastern mysticism. That's not the, that, that type of meditation is for us to empty our minds. And most of the time it's heretical anyway. But it's for us to empty our minds. Meditation on God's word is for us to fill our minds. So when we meditate on God's word, it's in relation to a feast. It's in relation to a feast. I've never been to a feast or a big dinner so I could leave hungry. Anytime I go to a feast, I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to leave full. So during the time, during this time when the scripture was written, feasts were a time of great food, a great time of great fellowship. You didn't go to a feast for a quick bite to eat and leave. It was a t you couldn't rush out. That was, it took up most of the day. And some, for some feasts, it even took days. Even now, nothing has really changed. When you go to a Thanksgiving meal or a Thanksgiving dinner, that's time for us to sit down and relax. It's a time for us to enjoy the food being served. It's a time for us to learn about unfamiliar foods that's being served at the table. That's what meditation on God's word looks like. It's more than just grabbing a spiritual plate to go. But it's taking the time to enjoy what is being said in the passage. It's a time to learn the parts of scripture that may be unfamiliar with hopes to grow. It's a time for self-examination and reflection. And because feasts are so relational, it leaves us with unforgettable memories. This is why he says in verse 15, he talks about meditation in verse 15, and then in verse 16, he says he won't forget God's word because the power of feasting on God's word will cause us to leave with unforgettable memories. Something else to note about the feast, and this is my last point, and I promise you I'm done. When you read, when you look at a feast, there's always more than one person in attendance. There's always more than one person in attendance. That's the beauty of family devotion. That's the beauty of small group or study groups. The beauty of being discipled. It's a time for us to feast on God's word with others and together so that we can all grow as a family in Christ. So when we meditate on the scriptures and when we store the scriptures in our heart, we will not sin against God. How can a man... A young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to God's word, surrendering to the authority of God's word, storing God's word in our heart, learning God's word so we can teach it, and then we meditate on it so we don't forget. That is the power of God's word. That is the prayer of Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you are a loving God. You are a God of provision. 
in such a dark world where we're trying to figure out where to go. We have so many questions to ask on how we can grow spiritually, but we thank you that before we even ask the question, you already made a way. We thank you that your word was already there and it was already established for us to read and feast on and grow. We thank you for your written word, but we also thank you for the living word made flesh. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his burial and bodily resurrection. Through his finished work, we have the hope of eternal life, and now we can come to you boldly before the throne of grace. We thank you for this moment of worship, this moment of time for us to read and dive into your word, and we pray that everything that's said and taught will be applied to our everyday lives and situations as we go from day to day. We pray that you receive glory out of everything that was said and done. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray all these things. Amen.